welcome to the Eurogamer podcast. I'm Bertie, your host, and every two weeks I find an interesting person from the world of games to talk to. Supporters of Eurogamer get these episodes first, and you can find out more about supporting us in the description or by heading to www.eurogamer.net. A quick note uh, before I begin that I'll be taking a short break over Christmas to put my feet up in front of the fire, which I don't have, uh, and I'll be back early in the new year. Today on the Eurogamer podcast, someone close to Eurogamer's heart, someone close to my own heart. They've been here for 14 years working on the site now, and for seven of those, they've led the site as editor steering our Eurogamer ship through calm waters and through some choppy ones. And all with a level head and eloquence. Ollie Welsh, welcome. Hi Bertie, I appreciate how you made like 14 years sound like a really big deal when you've been here for at least like <laughs> 25, right? Don't turn the tables on me. It, it, yeah, it's quite a long time now. Um, we just, we don't talk about it. <laughs> Um, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show and to snoop a bit into your into your office there. I can see a, a pot plant uh, behind you there that seems to be crazy. It looks a bit like my hair. Yeah, it's it's absolutely wild. It was in the living room and we've relocated it here on the uh, on the sort of proviso that it tries to behave a little bit and sort of calm down. But we'll have to see how it goes. Is that is this room where things go when they get a bit unruly? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's also slightly bittersweet, this episode, because, of course, uh, you're leaving us. Uh, you're leaving Eurogamer um, at the end of the year. How yeah. could you? Do you know what? I mean, it, uh, it's a tough one. Um, it's, it's, it's a question of time. Uh, like, for me, uh, it's, it's been a long, a long stretch working on one site um, and um, quite a long stretch as leader. Um, funnily enough, um, some, some of the listeners might remember, um, my predecessor, Tom Bramwell, uh, when he left, um, which was a surprise to me and, uh, he phoned me up while I was on holiday in France and informed Did me you? that I was soon going to be the editor of Eurogamer, pretty okay, much. So, I mean, so what happens? So you're on, you're on holiday. I'm on holiday. You get a phone call from Tom. Yeah. I got two phone calls in one day. One was from the local dramatic society informing <laughs> them that I'd been cast in the production of Arsenic and Old Lace in the, uh, in the Curry Grant role, which I was quite pleased with. And the other one was from, uh, was from Tom and he said, I am, I've, I've handed in my notice and I'm leaving. Wow. And, uh, well, you know, obviously we'll see, I had to talk to Rupert who was, who was, um, still the boss of our, our parent company at the time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, everybody, uh, seemed quite keen for me to, to carry on. Um, when I got back, yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't long after I got back from holiday that we, that we made the change. Although Tom hung around for a couple of months after that. Um, but yeah, so at, at that stage, Tom had been with the company for 14 years and had been editor for seven. So it was, it's almost exactly the same, same oh. time spans involved, which is a little bit weird. Maybe there's like some sort of ticking clock on this. Obviously, it's a it's a tick that you haven't heard, Bertie. But like, I maybe, maybe it just comes with the, maybe it only comes with the top job, the seven year like limit on the top job. But um, it, it's a long stint, and I, I'm I'm just like Eurogamer means more to me than certainly anything else I've ever worked on. Um, 
as a site and as a family of people as well. And that family's evolved over time. Well, not that much. There's still a, a huge number of people who've been here since the start and, and, and a lot who've been here since for at least like 10 years. You know, you talk about your Wezzers and your Tom Phillips and your Martin Robinsons. A lot of those guys have been around for a long time too. Um, but um, I just really felt like I needed a change. I, I needed something different to work on. Not too different, but um, something that would uh, that would kind of reframe my priorities and uh, not my priorities. It's a, it's a wrong way of putting it, but uh, just reframe work for me and, and, and revitalize it. And um, as much as I love Eurogamer, I I found myself looking at the site and and feeling like um, like I didn't like I didn't really know what to do with it anymore. I'm not sure if that's that's quite right, but like, uh, here's here's another part of the equation, right? So, so we have this incredibly like talented team, and as I've already alluded, um, people tend to stick around because it's a really nice place to work, and it's a really fantastic site to work on. It's always been really high quality and really rewarding to work on. So, Wes has been around for a long time. Tom, Martin. Donlan's been here for I think I think almost a decade and certainly writing for the site for longer than that. Um, you've got these tremendously creative and talented people. Any any one of whom would be editor in chief of uh, of another site uh, elsewhere. And you've got like and we're and we're we're rolling deep. There's like four or five people who could who could quite easily run the site. And um, uh, so I naturally was leaving a lot of the creative decisions to to them mm. um, because I'd be throttling their progress as, as journalists if I didn't let them do it and because they were doing it better than me anyway. Um, so my role had, had changed over time. It expanded a bit as well. I was, I was sort of formally looking after Digital Foundry and the European versions of Eurogamer. Um, and you know there was there was a moment at which I might have climbed a little bit further up in the company into into a, into a larger sort of editorial management role, but I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to get too far away from the editorial work phase. So I found myself, so I'd, I'd sort of paused my own career where I was because I didn't want to go any further, but I had all of these guys catching up with me and I was handing over more and more of, of, of the site to them because they had every right to, to want to take command of it and uh, leaving myself with the more managerial task to do, which, um, I don't want to denigrate because there's there, there's a lot of sophistication and difficulty to in that kind of work, and there's actually a lot of reward to be had from it as well. But um, I was really missing the more the, the more creative end and struggling to find the time to put those that work and that and the writing and so on back in back into my um, into my diary. So. That was that was part of, of wanting to make the change. I felt I felt like to be honest, I'd, I'd reached a natural endpoint, and mm. that um, and that it would be healthy for me to move on, and healthy for the site too to to sort of to fully acknowledge the leadership role that those guys were already in, but also let them take on more, and and also let other people and the rest of the team bubble up. So like you're seeing that as a kind of as a result of 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 me going, we've been able to make a lot of a lot of cool changes not just with you know martin becoming editor and, and wes taking on that kind of um editorial direction role uh but also you know things like it, that means that if martin's no longer looking after reviews then chris tapsall like a tremendously talented writer who's been on the site already for quite a long time i think of him as a new guy but it's been like seven years <laughs> or something 
you know, he's he's our new reviews editor. And like, it's it's long overdue. And Lottie Lynn, second stepping up to senior guy as well. So Matt Reynolds to associate editor, um, managing editor. Sorry, um, a lot of those kind of moves are long overdue. Um, and we haven't had to, we haven't been able to make as many of them as we'd like to on Eurogamer, partly because we have such this incredibly stable staff. So it's a it's a pleasing part of not that I'm sort of like retiring myself but it's a pleasing <laughs> it's a pleasing like part of the natural order of things that you know if you move on that it unlocks a lot of possibility for everybody that you've been working with uh and it's a it's a nice it's a nice time to go and a nice way to leave it i think so i'm i'm uh i'm pleased about that but obviously you know it's it, there's a sadness with it as well because of all the people who i've worked with who are such close friends and I'm, I'm gonna miss all of you terribly um and because I'm going to miss the site itself because it's like, I'm not the sort of guy, I don't think I've got a very strong, um, uh, editorial personality in that way. I don't think I like really project editorially in the way, certainly not in the way that Tom Bramwell used to. <laughs> um, so I've, I've never really thought of Eurogamer as a reflection of me in the same way, but I guess inevitably having worked on it so long, having led it for seven years, but also like for that crucial, there was like a crucial period of like, well, actually from not long after I joined to up, up and to, up to becoming editor when um, me and Tom Bramwell and Ellie Gibson in particular, the three of us were thick of thick as thieves. And we, I think we really kind of formed what we wanted the site to be between the three of us. And we had a really nice balance between us as well. Um, and, and I think that's that's really what became, I think, the Eurogamer personality that, that still exists to this day. And obviously mm. it's been formed a lot as well by by the rest of the team and, the, and, and by Wes and Martin, those people who've come on after. But like, yeah, it, inevitably the site is, a, is, is me as well, <laughs> like having worked on it so long. And because editorial work is, is fundamentally quite personal work. Um, yeah, you know, there's a sadness with leaving it as well, but also a, a kind of relief, <laughs> kind of like I get to I get to like just set that aside now and and actually start from start from scratch and and refigure out who I am uh, as a you know in, in, in at work. So uh, that's that's something that I'm really excited to do. Well, yeah. you can go on a gap year and go travelling to Australia. <laughs> find God, if only I could. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a mortgage to pay and two kids to uh, feed so um but so it uh, wasn't it wasn't the metal gear solid review funnily enough no like 11 years later no what hang on when was that i can't so even was, remember that was, oh, that was oh wait that was the year that i joined that was the year that uh, I joined. metal gear solid for guns of the patriots for people who are listening yeah. it was the year i joined uh yeah no 14 years later the weight of those 2700 angry comments finally <laughs> finally break me down you weren't finished as a journalist it turns out no it wasn't no and i'm still not i'm glad to say i can't say where i'm going next as of this podcast um although it won't be too long like in the new year i will pop up on twitter and you'll be able to find out you'll be able to find out where i'm off to but um, i'm still going to be writing uh which is something that i'm very happy about and uh, i'm very pleased about um because uh, it's something I've loved. I love to do, and something I wanted to do from like I don't know my early teens. I knew that I was good at it, and specifically like this kind of journalism. I used to like 
write little capsule reviews of all the films I watched on my mum's word processor <laughs> and like give them little star ratings with the asterisk key. And it was just, it was just something I knew that I wanted to do. And like I said, I was worried about getting too far away from it. And um, I'm really, really delighted that I found a way to keep, uh, to keep doing it. Um, because it's not, um, it's not the natural career progression for, for journalists, particularly for games journalists, I think it's quite hard. It's a young man's game, games journalism, a young person's game, I should say. Don't say that, Ollie. Well, I know, <laughs> not for us. <laughs> it's changing. That, that, is, that is changing. And, and, you know, I hope to be living proof of that. But um, uh, you reach a certain point in your career and, and you, run out, you run out of options. Like there's only so many jobs to go around. And, um, you know, there's, there's more money to be made if you want to, if you want to move into marketing or PR or, or maybe, uh, hop over into the development side as well. And I, I know a lot of, a lot of my peers have done that and people, people we've worked with over the years, people like Will Porter, um, a, uh, or, uh, my old friend, Ben Schroeder, um, who uh, he works for Rocksteady these days, but um, he used to write for Edge magazine back when I was a freelancer there. But that's, uh, that's going way back. But um, I always admired that. But weirdly enough, I never wanted to do it. Like I was, I've always been very clear about the kind of writing that I want to do, and it was, it was never been fiction writing. I always wanted to do journalism, specifically criticism. I wanted to be somebody who was like looking at the stuff that was out there and analysing it and curating it for people. I just, I just, it's just been a, like a really strong instinct in me from, from a really early on. So, um, yeah, I, I lost my thread there, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, it's, yeah, that's right. It's, 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 it's a hard job to stay in. Um, but I found a way to do it and I'm, I'm really excited that I get to continue. Oh, it's, it's nice to see you re-energized and, um, I'm pleased that we'll still be able to, to read your work, which I think is some of the best work out there. And you talked about not having perhaps as large a written personality as someone like Tom Bramwell or someone mm. like Ellie, um, mm. perhaps. But I think if you look closely, particularly at your criticism, something which I think you're particularly, particularly good at, you're brilliant at. I, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I can never do something like this. Uh, and I wonder how you do it. It's like a mystical art. I know it's lots of hard work probably behind the scenes, but it, it seems so effortless for you. And I think in that, but also that critical approach, I think you took to leading Eurogamer, you are a very different personality to Tom Brownwell, mm. who is more reactionary uh, for better and worse sometimes. And I think yeah. you had a more critical approach. You stood back, you took time to think about things and think about the best way forward. And yeah. I think if people were to really look closely at your time uh at the at the top of Eurogamer, you know leading it as well that they would see the effect that is how i certainly saw the effect um firsthand from inside while i was trying to cause trouble for everyone <laughs> at the same time <laughs> i don't know also, i mean yeah it's, it's it's who i am and i think i think one of the, the most important things i've learned about this is that um about management or about leading something, leading, leading a team, leading a creative enterprise is that you have to do it as yourself hmm. uh, and you have to do it in your, in your own way. And I had to accept that 
I didn't have a, I didn't have the kind of editorials, the kind, those kind of like agenda setting, excoriating editorials that Tom used to write. I don't, I don't really have those in me. They, they, you know, the famous Microsoft <laughs> kills game and ownership and expects us to smile, like a, a, a headline which literally, you know, haunted and and changed the course of of that company. Um, I, you know, I, I had to accept that I wasn't, I, I wasn't that kind of that kind of writer and also all that kind of editorial leader. Um, but that that I had to do, I had to find, I had to do it in my own way, and um, managing people is is it's I don't know, it's just it's 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 about as different from writing as you can get. Writing <laughs> writing is that there's only you. It's it's a conversation with yourself, and it's 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 a it's a it's a pure kind of of communication. Uh, whereas managing a, a team of people is is so much about uh, diplomacy and, and delicacy and conversation and interchange and flexibility and compromise and you know all of those words yeah and, and all of those things that you don't like you might want to have in the thought behind your writing when it comes to the writing itself it has to be it has to be total it has to be totalizing that you know your commitment to it um and so my work yeah like it, it, i my 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 job became something that was actually incredibly different because when i was right up to the point i was um you know section editor even deputy editor deputy editor i'm starting to like be part of more decision making i guess but most of my working day is writing or working with other writers and that is incredibly focused work um and Whereas, whereas running Eurogamer is, is, is anything, but it's very bitty, it's very distractible, it's very, um, you know, it's, uh, plate spinning. Yeah. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a vastly different thing to do. And I think I've learned, I've learned so much while doing it. It's been an amazing experience doing it. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting a bit more of that, that focus back in my life because I miss it. And because... Um, like I, I definitely, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that my writing seems effortless. It's definitely not effortless, but where you're right is, is that it is something that's innate to me. It's never something that I've had to like really work to reach. It's something that I, um, that I, that it, it feels natural, put it that way to do not easy, but natural. So let's let's go back in time a tiny bit here. Yeah. Well, a tiny bit is probably a, a fair bit. Um, and you talked about uh, you as a, a boy. I can't imagine you as a boy for some reason, unless you're maybe wearing a cravat. I've worn a polo <laughs> neck especially for you today. Do you know I what? picture you in a polo neck, even uh, though you're in a sweater. There probably are photos of me at 14 as I'm wearing, wearing a cravat. I would have been dressed up for something, but I also <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't have had to struggle too hard to get me into it, I'm ashamed to say. God. And you... You you spoke about um, writing reviews um, f for your mum's films yeah. or films you. Um, so I mean, what were you like as a boy? What were your sort of what were your dreams? Um, what was your life like growing up? Oh gosh. Okay, so I grew up in the countryside in Northamptonshire. Um, my dad was a teacher. Uh, my mum uh, was a full-time parent to begin with and then she went back to social work which had been her uh, vocation before that 
my mum is Swiss. She comes from Geneva, so she was she was living as a as an immigrant in the English countryside. It's a very pleasant rolling countryside in Northamptonshire, um, right in the middle of of England, like as far as you can get from any coastline. Basically, you plot that that it's not that far north of London, like an hour and a half drive north of London, but that point where you, you just get as far away from the sea as you can in this little country. Um, and it was quite idyllic in that way. Like we didn't have a lot of money because you, you know, you don't get paid much as, as a teacher or as a social worker, but, um, uh, we somehow fluked our way into renting this bungalow with like this huge, beautiful garden with a wood at the bottom, and a little pond from a local landowner who, just wanted a nice family to look after it and you know in that aristocratic way it wasn't that bothered about money so we had this nice sort of new build sort of new build for then like late 60s early 70s bungalow <laughs> huge uh picture windows looking out over these beautiful views over the countryside um and yeah we had a, we had a pretty quiet life you know um the biggest excitement was you know uh, every summer getting to go to to Switzerland and to France to visit my mum's family, who I idolised because they were all artists. My my granddad uh, was an architect, my grandmother a painter, my aunts. Uh, so my mum is one of five sisters, and um, she's a social worker. One of her sisters is a is an architect and town planner planner, but the others are a ceramicist, a musician, and uh, and uh, an actor director in the in the theatre in Paris. Ah. So that 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 creative life was very uh was was definitely uh, was very attractive and was very idolized um by by me, I guess. So uh, within within the family, but like I so yeah that was that was that was like a strong a, a strong thing for me. So where two things i suppose where do games come into this where do games feature in your in your yeah. childhood and when do you start writing and why do you start writing reviews for 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 films and and, and what yeah why are you doing that so game games come in first um my dad taught uh my dad taught all, all sorts of things he was a polymath like like he was known at his school um he taught in a in a middle school in rugby. He was known for being the guy that you could get to to fill in for any teacher on any lesson. <laughs> he would just come home. He would get like we had an Encyclopedia Britannica at home, and he would just like he would just like pull a few volumes off the shelf and research a topic and be able to teach it the next day on anything wow. like botany, anything. But um, his his main topics were, were maths and, and physics and sciences, and he taught English and French as well. Um, but he um, he uh, took it on himself to teach computing at his school, which was a, this was like in the early eighties when it was very a very new thing. And he used to bring um, computers home from work for us to fiddle about with. And first there was like a, a Texas Instruments, uh, and I think we had a Commodore Pet for a brief spell. Um, and then one day he came home with a Sinclair ZX eighty one, and my first gaming memory so i guess i'm like uh if it was 81 and it might have been i would be it would have been seven years old um we've got this thing hooked up to a little portable tv set 
in the hallway for some reason because it's just like <laughs> we had some room well then in the you hallway, can't miss it on but the like way also in, like it was at that stage where you didn't you didn't know it was home computing was such a new thing you did you didn't know which room in the house the computer went in it's <laughs> like now it would naturally be well obviously you'd either put it in the office or maybe in the living room on the big tv but now it's just like but at that time it was like well the phone's in the hallway so maybe it's a bit like a phone <laughs> so maybe we put it there but anyway, we had, we had this ex and one that had this text adventure Inca curse on it. And I, I just remember the whole family being being clustered around the screen trying to figure out the puzzles to Inca curse. And so that's where like gaming started was with it was with this like passion that my dad had had for these computers and he keep bringing them home. He bought us as an XAT one and he bought us a Spectrum as well when they came out. And my, my brother used to just used to, I've written about it on the site. There's this uh, article you should look up called um, Spectrum Made Me, which I wrote for the anniversary of the Spectrum. But um, the, yeah, my brother just used to code on, on the Spectrum and I just used to play games on it. And <laughs> he, he is a programmer to this day and I've made my living playing video games. So it was yeah, very, a very formative, formative thing. So yeah, I went, I went absolutely games mad uh, on the, I played a lot on the ZX81. Even the ZX81's games were absolutely terrible. But I, I went games mad on the Spectrum, and, and as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, the, the gaming scene on the Spectrum was a absolutely astonishing, like unique, never to be repeated thing. Where that just this cottage industry that was very specific to the UK because the Spectrum didn't export that much, absolutely blew up. But it was it was hugely successful, and there was just just insane creativity and productivity on that machine, which was not powerful had a lot of compromises and was was not that easy to make games for um but but was very accessible it was cheap to buy it was cheap to make games for and uh, you could sell the games to like a huge audience because so many of the damn things had sold so yeah the, the spectrum gaming scene was me and my friend rob just exchanging these like c90 tapes with a few other like games uh, fans at school that were like, just like crammed full of like all of the games that we bought would just like circulate the tapes around so we could share all of the games that we had with each other and um play i played everything and i read um crash magazine avidly okay. and that's probably where the the writing the journalism criticism part comes in it's like it's is reading is reading crash i loved i love the magazine i love the strength of the voices of the writers in it I, I wrote them a letter, which got letter of the month, which to this day is one of my proudest <laughs> What did you say in your letter? It was about, there was a game that was like, it was a really slick kind of 2D shmup. It was basically a Space Invaders, like scrolling shmup thing. I think it was called Light Force or something generic like that. But it had reviewed really well and it caused a bit of debate, such as there was debate in those days about, you know, originality. <laughs> and I wrote in defending like defending this game saying originality is not everything just like how old are, really slick you? execution I don't know 10 11 something like that um and uh yeah I got letter of the month and I got good a good it was like a hundred pound hundred wow. pound voucher for like games so I was able to get a whole bunch of stuff got a new ultimate player game release whichever one it was I can't remember I got the Nosferatu game few other bits and bobs but um yeah so that's that's where that started um funny enough then games takes a pause because okay um my parents couldn't afford to 
upgrade us from to like 16-bit. I really, really wanted an Atari ST or, or an Amiga. I think it was the ST I was particularly sold on. Uh, but um, they couldn't afford to get us a new computer at that time. And uh, so, so, and now I'm coming into my early teens, I guess 13, 14 years old. And I'm watching a load of, I'm watching every movie I can watch, which in those days was a matter of just like taping um, BBC Two, like would just run loads of classic movies every night. And I'm just like educating myself on the film canon, basically, and getting super into that. And I start reading, you know, coming off my love of Crash Magazine, I start reading Empire. I start reading Q Magazine about music and getting into music writing as well. And start reading some more, um, uh, not to denigrate the Crash guys, who's like, enthusiasm was amazing but some some slightly more uh what's the word to use mature i guess not in a mean way but just a, a literally more mature form of criticism yeah um and really enjoying that and and i'm really 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 getting into movies as well and, and into into storytelling and I, i'd always been quite a big reader but the storytelling in movies really gripped me in, in a very special way um, and so that was, and, and music I was really into as well. And that was, that was, those were my sort of enthusiasms through my, my later teens. And so my friend Rob continued to be into games and I'd go around his house and I remember he had a mega drive and I used to play there like stuff like Sonic and, um, that one with a helicopter Apache attack or something like that. Uh, yeah. Um, on his mega drive. Um, I sort of stayed in touch a little bit. Um, I didn't outgrow games. I just didn't have the hardware at home and I had other stuff that I was into. And games didn't come back into my life until uh, I was at uni. My second year at uni, I was showing what were flat. You, what were you doing at uni? I was studying English. Makes um, sense. Yeah, although I, I never graduated for reasons too boring to go into right now. Um I had a fantastic time at uni. It was a very formative time for me, but I, I do pride myself on actually actually doing what I was trained for, which is like, I mean, literary criticism. I'm working in a different medium, but I'm still like, there's not many English graduates who can say they're actually doing what they were trained for. But uh, I just, just thought I didn't graduate. Anyway, um, yeah, second year at uni, I was sharing a, Fred, uh, sharing a flat with my, with my great friend Tristan, and he treated himself to... Uh, a, a Super Nintendo, and that that machine was at the end of its life then. But he bought one off a off a friend of his who was selling it, and he got it with Super Mario Kart and Super Mario World, which were by no means the most visually arresting games you'd ever seen. Certainly not by that point, which was like ninety three or something. Mm. But um, I was absolutely flabbergasted by them, uh, by just how good the games were. Not how not how stunning the graphics were, but just how how good they were, how playable and how fun, how, you know, I couldn't believe Mario Kart. We, we just, we played it for hours and hours and hours on end, just the two of us. <laughs> and Mario World, the sophistication of the design, it was, was absolutely amazing to me. And so those two, those two games brought, brought me back into gaming. And then it was a really exciting time because, you know, within months of that, the PlayStation launched. <laughs> And um, we'd go down Blockbuster with my with my um, girlfriend at the time, and we'd we'd rent 
the place a rent a PlayStation with a box. They used, to, they used to give them to you these big plastic suitcases, and you get the PlayStation and you rent a few games with it and you rent it for the weekend. And uh, yeah, and then then my girlfriend got like a bursary and she blew like whatever it was. It was like a stunning amount of money, like four hundred pounds or something, to buy a to buy a PlayStation which was one of those early ones that you had to, like after six months of use, you had to turn it upside down to get the disc <laughs> to read properly. But yeah, it was, a, that was, a, so that was when games really exploded for me. So like going straight from like the hardcore Super Nintendo classics to PlayStation launching and then N64, like a, a year or two later with Ocarina. And by then I had like, um, on PC emulation, sh been catching up with all of the like Nintendo stuff, particularly that I had missed uh, in the in the sixteen bit generation, which had completely passed me by. So I've been playing like Zelda and, and Super Metroid and stuff. Um, uh, so I was so excited for for Nintendo sixty four, and and yeah, what what a time to be to be present for in the medium when when three D was happening and seeing this. Te technological and, and creative revolution was happening within games. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I kind of glossed over the writing side of that, but yeah, it, 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 the writing side came from from loving reading the mags, the mags basically. I was, I was super into mags. That was another passion of mine, starting with Crash, going into those other m magazines about music and film and, and wanting to emulate those writers and just loving the way I just loved those magazines. I loved the way the portal they were to the whole, to these whole cultures. And, and of course they like informed, you know, the movies that I would, I would try and hunt down and watch or the records that I would buy uh, or the games that I would play. But more than that, it was like, it was getting to, getting to read about all the stuff that I knew that I wouldn't watch or listen to mm. or play and, and know something about it and learn something about it. I found there was huge value in that and I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of it. And I found that it came, it came naturally to me and the style of writing was, was something that I, I, I really enjoyed. And I'd always been good at writing, but I hadn't written many stories. Like I'd written a couple and they'd always done, you know, got good marks from the teachers at school, but I'd struggled with the original ideas. And I remember having a long conversation with one of my English teachers who I'd written this science fiction story and he said, this is really, really good. And it, but it also reminds me of this other story. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did. I think I had read that story, the short story. And it was like, it was pretty much a ripoff. But I it, I hadn't done it consciously. I hadn't sat there with the text going, oh, yeah, I'll copy this. <laughs> it had filtered into the back of my brain. And then I'd sort of repurposed it. And I was like, well, if I can't have the original ideas, but I can, I can communicate them well and I can write well, maybe this is, maybe this is, this life is for me. So, yeah, that's how I got into into criticism alongside the rest of it. So at what point do you write an article about games and get paid for it? Not because... for, a, not for okay. a long time, not for a long time. Cause we're, we're still in the like early nineties at this point. Right. Uh, so I, I don't graduate, but I, I sort of leave university at the same time as everyone else. I come down to London I'm determined to be a film journalist. It doesn't happen. I, you know, with hindsight, know that I was not doing the right thing. I was just basically trying to find a job, which is just mm. completely the wrong thing to do. What I should have been was just trying to pitch articles, just just get a little bit of freelance here and there, which I bet I could have done. 
and I flattered myself that I'm a good enough writer that I could have I could have got a foot in the door. I also didn't know how to network, and you have to you have to be able to network. You have to be able to like find somebody somewhere to talk to who can know somebody you can you can you can send a, a letter to no an email an email it would have been an email uh, at that point and um so I, I didn't know how to do it and I and I kind of gave up um and I'm wasting my time in in sort of temp jobs and doing a bit of uh freelance work as like freelance translation and media analysis and stuff uh doing some work for the civil service um but uh, I also start hanging out on the forum for Edge magazine, uh-huh. which, I, which which I have now discovered and is now the holy holy grail of of video game magazines. And it is, uh, it was, and remains to this day amazing. And um, the Edge forum in the late nineties was a, was a really vibrant place, full of a really funny and and creative and eloquent people. And the staff of the magazine used to hang out there. And so I spent a lot of time um, on the forum and it was through the forum that I got to know people on the mag. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the old networking thing. Mm. Um, And eventually a job came up, but, should I go into this? Yeah, why not? I was, I was, <laughs> I was breaking up with my girlfriend at the time, and she was part of this whole thing too. This is a girlfriend who'd, who'd who'd rented the PlayStation with me. We'd been massively into games together, which had mostly been a very harmonious thing for us, for each, for us, except for when Final Fantasy VIII and Gran Turismo Two came out at the same time, and it was just like a hell of one person sitting in the bedroom being miserable, listening to the plinky plunk menus of the other person playing the playing the game of their choice. And room next door anyway um yeah it'd been a big like shared passion for us and she uh, we broke up around the time that this uh, just before this job was advertised and she went for it and i sort of let her do it i sort of let her have it because part of thing else she was kind of prepared to move away to bath where edge magazine was based and i wasn't it's Margaret Robertson for any of you like old school UK games journalism nerds who went on to be editor of Edge. Um, uh, so I was like, "Oh, fine, you you do it," because I don't want to leave London. And but at the same time, there was a, there was a level of like, oh, maybe that was my shot. But um, Margaret and I were patched it up, and we we became really really good friends again. And she was like, "You know, you, you know, you need to be writing. I know how good you are." let's let's get you involved so she had me write a blind review of a metroid game on the gba i can't remember what name it was <laughs> somebody will be able to tell me which which metroid it was on the gba and i got her to give it to well she she, she i wrote it and she gave it blind to tony mott the editor of the magazine i was like do you want this person to write she was being very scrupulous so there wasn't any like nepotism involved uh, and he was like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is good. We could use this. Who, who is it? And she was like, it's, it's Ollie, who Tony knew. Uh, she, he knew me from the forum. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, we all knew Ellie, Ollie could write. Why didn't you just say so? <laughs> so, uh, so, that was, so that was it. And then my first piece of public game journalism, published game journalism, is in April 2004. 
It's a review of uh, Mario Golf Advance mm-hmm. Tour. A Mario Golf Advance Tour. That's what it was called for the game for the GBA, and uh, and it was in an issue of Edge. It was a half page, which was paid the princely sum of thirty five pounds, and that was it. That was my first first professional thing. I'd, I'd obviously written a lot on the forum by then, and, and that had been my outlet, I think, for for my games writing. Uh, I certainly can't remember what any of the posts were, um, and they're all lost to lost to time now. But like that was that was my first my first job doing it professionally. Yeah. So, do you then go on from there to contribute more and more to Edge, or are you still? Is it still a very sporadic thing? Pretty. So it was about a year of me doing it more or less as a as a as a hobby. I called it then. You'd call it a side hustle now. <laughs> so I was st- I was still I was working full time for the Department for Transport and very boring administrative job. That does sound boring. And they were like, "Oh, you you know you should do fast track." I was like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> like I don't know. Like the civil service is like I I respect. I respect it as a calling of just like, you know, helping the country function, but there's so much waste and there's just so much, there's so many people just like wasting their time and wasting public money. I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. So I was, I was excited to, you know, have something else to do in the evenings, which was basically it. And I would get like one or maybe two reviews a month from edge for a year. And then, then I, my one year sort of temp contract with, the demand for transport came up at the same time that Edge lost a staff member. Funnily enough, I think it was Ben Schroeder who I mentioned um, leaving. And they decided they were just going to beef up their freelance budget instead of replace that staffer. And so Margaret said, look, if you, you can, you know, we'll take as much from you as you can do, basically. Uh, you know, it won't, it won't like pay for you to live, but it will, it will go a good chunk of the way. So I was like, okay, cool, let's do it. And I went into full-time freelancing. And then the next thing Margaret did was send me a copy of World of Warcraft and say, you should play this with us. I think you'd like it. And that nearly destroyed it all. Because <laughs> then like, so yeah, because it was, this was early 2005, right? So yeah, the game had just come out. I'd just gone full-time freelance and I was doing no work. I was in my dressing gown until four o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, I spent a week prodding at this game going, this is kind of slow and boring and I don't get it. Uh, and then I was like, oh my God, where did the world last month of my life go? And it, I know and exactly it nearly, what you mean. Yeah, I know you do, Bertie. So it, it nearly, it nearly ruined it all. Um, but it turned out, it turned out to have been a, a worthwhile gamble. Uh, because I turned myself into an MMO specialist. Nobody else was willing to write about these games because they're, they're so complex and they're so time consuming. Um, and so I did lots of WoW coverage for Edge. And I, at the time, everybody wanted to take a chunk out of WoW as well. So all of these contenders were popping up. So I would I would run off immediately to preview Lord of the Rings Online or or um, whatever other game there's like, there's a, there was one with like uh, being PR'd by my friend Leo that had loads of cars in it. Auto Assault, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that one? Mm-hmm. Um, there's loads, loads of 
variously dreadful uh, wannabe MMOs cropping up. And then there were, but there were also fascinating stories around games like Eve Online that you could report on. So I was like, okay, I'm 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 going to have a crack at this. And although WoW was the only game that I actually put serious playtime into, I I I started to understand enough about what would make an online game tick and what it needed that I could write decent coverage. I could I could analyze the games fairly well and I could write decent coverage of them. And um, that was really useful to Edge and and, it, and increasingly to other um, other publications as well. So you know that in the end it became a useful a useful niche for me to fill was like being the MMO guy because there weren't that many people who could do it. Um, and I've got to say as well there was a willingness involved there which would seem crazy now um, a willingness to write without without necessarily having put hundreds of hours in on the game. To just like because it uh, it was oddly freeing in a way it was because it was actually impossible it's like it's there's just no way I can't mm. I can't I can't be complete about this game so I'm just going to try and take as broader uh, as broader snapshot of it as I can and read into that what I can and um, yeah I made a go of it and that is what what um, became my my entree to Eurogamer. Yes, because you uh, you join Eurogamer in 2008, I think, yeah. um, and you are brought on as MMO editor. Yeah, I think uh, at the time we had a section, and um, like everyone else, because there were all these wow, um, like hyenas coming along, uh, we wanted to have a section which it didn't last. But <laughs> as far as I understand, had we a little did... logo and everything with a little galaxy around that. We did. It uh, was like a proper, for the o. Um, uh... <laughs> as I understand, we, we kept you on because you, you were too, too good to too good. We, we found a yeah, I, I still don't know. You'd have to ask Tom and Ellie and Rupert to what extent they really wanted the MMO thing or to what extent it was an excuse to hire me. I don't know. <laughs> I know that Tom wanted, that Tom was quite keen to get me on board. And Ellie and I were, were really close friends by that point. We'd met sort of on the, on the um, games event circuit and found out that we lived near each other in South London and started hanging out. And um, so, you know, and also they just love to steal writers of future. So if there's an opportunity to steal a writer off, particularly either PC Gamer or Edge, they would always take it. Um, so, yeah, I think they were quite keen to get me anyway. And the MMO thing at the time, you know, made sense. Um, I've told this story before, but like on uh, New Year's, uh, I made a New Year's uh, resolution on the 1st of January 2008, um, which was that, like I gave myself six months to get into a position where freelancing was working for me financially because it just wasn't quite getting there or I was just not making quite enough money. I was in a lucky position with where I was like living and stuff and with my mum's support that I could manage, but like it just wasn't, it just wasn't quite enough. So um, I was like, I've got six months to sort this out uh, and to either like land a, a land a, you know, a writing job or land one of those plum freelance gigs that will, <laughs> that will that will pay for enough of your monthly sort of uh, your, your monthly outgoings with with one sort of simple bit of work and then you can just do the rest. 
Uh, and then on the 2nd of January, Ellie sent me an email saying, would you be interested in a job at Eurogamer? I was like, oh, I should make New Year's resolutions more often. But um, yeah, so so that opportunity came along and I wrote this, I remember writing this like exhaustive, like seven page document about MMO coverage and all of the games that were coming out and everything that I could do with it, uh, which I submitted to... Um, through Ellie, who uh, who gave it one of her typically strict edit- editing passes uh, before she before she passed it on um, to to Tom and Kristen, who was the publisher, I think, at that point, and and Rupert. And uh, then I went down to Brighton, and I was interviewed in a pub because that was a thing that you did at that time. <laughs> Um, Tom couldn't make it, but Rupert and Kristen were there, I think. And, and yeah, and then like within a month, cause Rupert liked to move fast within a month. I was, I was on staff. Do you remember what your first ever piece published on Eurogamer was? Cause you've, I, I was, I was looking no. and, uh, you no, have two and I a half no thousand pieces on Eurogamer now. Which is a lot, but actually not that much for 14 years. It shows how, how little I've written in the last few years. Also, I've never been like, you know, you know I'm not going to be like a, a Wesley and Paul on, on that level because I don't churn out like seven news stories a day. It's more like yeah. a couple of features a week. But um, yeah, although although back in the early days when I joined, everybody used to write news. It was like the whole team would write news for the first three hours of the day and then everybody would split off onto to doing different tasks. But anyway, I digress. No, I don't remember what my first piece was. It was a Wii Fit preview. So this would probably be as a freelancer, right? What's the mm-hmm. date on it? Uh, August 20, 2007. Wii Fit? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. I remember, I do, I don't remember that. I do remember when I was freelancing, I remember Kristen, who was still the editor at that point, uh, gave me all of the worst Wii launch games to review. <laughs> Just like the absolute dregs. Like like there was a really bad monster truck game and another game that really wanted to be Gran Turismo but was just awful. Um, yeah, I don't remember the Wii Fit preview. I remember those. I remember some GBA games. Uh, I remember old DS games as well. I did a review of... Um, Kristen got me reviewing one of those, like, Nintendo still do these, one of those games that's just got, like, solitaire and poker and, like, darts and, like, everything in it. 42 on 40 all-time classics, something like that. I have no idea. No. Yeah, no, Kristen used to send me the most random stuff to review, but it was uh, it was all grist to the mill for a, for a freelancer at the time. Was Eurogamer what you thought it would be when you when you joined? Um, I guess, yes, because I would got to know Ellie so well. So I, I think I had a pretty good feel for it. Um, uh, and I was, I was very attracted to work there for a couple of specific reasons. One, you know, mostly it was a job and I needed one, as I've said. <laughs> I didn't need one that much because I had been offered a couple of opportunities to work on Edge. And as much as I loved the magazine, I turned them down mostly because I didn't want to move to Bath. And, you know, this was in the days before remote work was was an easy thing, although actually it turns out that was how Eurogamer was run, which was very uh, forward thinking at the time. 
but um, um, yeah, I just I I'd heard a few things about Future as an employer. As much as I loved Edge and loved the, and, and respected the team there, I, I just it just didn't seem like a great place to work. So I had a little alarm bell in my head about it. Um, and I'd quickly gathered from Ellie and from talking to people that you, that Rupert seemed to be willing to pay slightly more grown-up wages than some of the other publishers in games journalism. And that he also seemed to be, like, interested in journalistic talent in a way that, at that point, the other publishers weren't. It was more like, get the kids in, you know, some of them are going to be talented you know, we'll we'll work them for as long as we can, and 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 you know, by the time they hit twenty eight, they'll they'll go and work in PR to go and make some <laughs> money. Uh, but that didn't seem to be the game that Rupert was playing, and obviously because it taken me so long to to break into that, and I was like, I was almost thirty by the time I had that first review of Mario Golf in Edge. Uh, you know, I was. I wasn't like super motivated by money, but I was like, I want to, I want to work for an employee, a employer that's going to take me and this seriously. And for all that Eurogamer was a small outfit, I had that vibe um, from from talking to Ellie that 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 it was a, it was a good place to work, and uh, my instincts were were fortunately correct on that on that on that front. Um, like it was a very young company still, and I can't I can't say that they or I should say we got everything right, but like the fundamentals in terms of like taking good journalism seriously and understanding that you need to to pay and retain people like professionals to do the job was seemed seemed like a really crucial difference to me. Um, obviously, like it was a bit of a shift going from. Uh, were largely working for print where like you know all my deadlines would tend to as a free even as a freelancer would tend to cluster around edge's print date uh to working online which was which was very constant and there was the joy as well of being introduced to like the the Eurogamer msn chat it was <laughs> msn at the time and then it became google for a while and these days it's slack but it's, it's much the same to be honest and uh just just having people present in my sort of working space, which as a freelancer I hadn't had. Um, so that was really fun, having having people to chat to about work every day and having that that sort of that really aggressive that this was a big change actually. The really the aggression of Eurogamer in the mornings was a thing. This was really <laughs> important to Tom. So we started at eight, because everybody else started at nine. And we were like, we'll be first. And and we'll have we'll have like three or four stories up on the homepage before while everybody else is still while all of our like rivals are still making their coffees, and we can we can like capture all the news that's hit overnight from the US. And so the the morning was like really like wow, so that was that was something because I was obviously I haven't been a freelancer for four years, so I was used to like not really doing any work before two in the afternoon, but now it was like eight o'clock, and let's 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 hammer out three news stories three or four new stories before lunch. Um, but aside from that, yeah, I, I mean, I guess because I'd met Tom and I, I knew Ellie and I'd met Kristen by that point, <laughs> it was, uh, I, I knew they were, I knew they were the cool kids. And, um, and that was, that was, uh, that was a really fun thing to be part of. What have been, there's a lot of, there are many years involved here, but what have been some of your, your proudest moments? over the time you've been here. Oh, 
gosh. Oh, I don't know. Um, that's a really, I don't, that's a really hard one to answer because there's so much of it, because you're looking back over so much time. Because as well, as a writer, you live in those moments, right? And so, like, yeah, for sure, in that first year, that Metal Gear Solid review was one of them. It was a review that I was very proud of, that really caused a fuss, and as kind of alarming as all of the comments and all the brouhaha around it was, I was I, I was able to roll with it and accept that, that, that there was something exciting and good happening there as well, if I was getting that much traction. And so I could pick out a dozen of those moments. Like in, in, in more recent years, it's different because the pride, the pride isn't about the moments. The pride is about the whole thing. The pride is in watching, watching the people you're working with grow and, and, and excel at their jobs. And, and, and the pride is in, is in getting through a period of time without any, without any upset or without anything that's gonna like throw everything off the rails. So I don't know, I find it a really hard one to answer. Um, the 20th anniversary was was huge for me personally. It's quite hard to do um, because I just come back. So this was like uh, 2019. I just come back off uh, extended parental leave for my second child. And I was a little bit struggling to get back into work. And the site was in the doldrums as well. Like we were struggling for traffic mm -hmm. that year after having had a really successful year the previous year. Uh, and some stuff had gone down while I was while I was on um, parental leave that hadn't been great for team morale and everyone was a bit down. And nobody was in the mood to celebrate. And I wasn't really either, to be honest, but I was like, we, we've got to do this. It's just too important to let it pass by. And I put a huge amount of effort, personal effort, into, into what we did that week on the site. And it was, it was amazing. Like we, we did that, we had this gold reskin. We had some cool articles, some of which I'd put together, some of which we, you know, other members of the team had. Looking back over the time of the site, it was really, it was really fun to, uh, one I particularly enjoyed, I took I took one article from every year of Eurogamer's publication that seemed to like embody that year. And also, I was also curating writers as well, trying to make sure that I highlighted most of the important writers and staff members we'd had over the years. From like your Simon Parkins and Kieran Gillens on the freelance side to obviously Tom and Ellie and yourself on the staff side. And then um, Craig and the tech team made each article appear as it had on the site at the time so we had we had these like pages running in dummy versions of earlier versions of Eurogamer because Craig, Craig had kept all the designs and all of the code and that was that was awesome to put together and um it was really hard really really hard work and really I really had to will it through uh but I was really proud of it when it happened because there was just this it was a real uplift and there was like this outpouring of good feeling and we get used to feeling like the readers are against us because you get a lot of comments from randoms like the metal gear thing that i mentioned 
that are very hostile. You know, this is nothing new. It used to be over review scores. These days, it's over culture war type stuff, and it's and it's even even more horrible than it used to be. Um, and it's particularly horrible if you're a woman or if you're you're someone from a, a marginalized group. But um, it's something you you distressingly get get used to, accept as a fact of life. And then along with that, we have a, a wonderful and passionate community on the site of, of dedicated readers who are, who are not those guys. They're not the random trolls, but they can be, they can be harsh <laughs> critics sometimes as well. Um, and you get used to thinking that you're just doing what you do because you love it and everybody hates it, but like, you know, screw them, we'll do it anyway. And is, and and you know you're just fighting the fight for yourself and then at those, at those moments when you get this just outpouring of respect and love from the community as we did not just the community on on the site but from from everybody in the uk business that we work with and then when we're able to like get hideo kojima and phil spencer and uh Amy Hennig and all of these great creators to contribute to our to our anniversary coverage, and uh, not just them, but um, uh, great writers from other sites that we admire, from like Polygon and Kotaku, and uh, you know uh, many of our com compatriots in, in in games journalism. It was a wonderful moment, and it was and it and and it was a moment for all of us to look up and go actually. We're really lucky to do these jobs and people really appreciate what we do and we we and eurogamer is a is a is a good thing that is loved by many and and that was that was a great moment so that one like yeah that one really sticks out for me you know i could name a bunch of articles although i'm struggling to right now <laughs> that i'm very proud of like there's always I mean, rather name name a I mean, I, I'll name one just off the top of my head because it's a more recent example. It was the review I did of Death Stranding. Mm. And and for me, it's, it's, this is something I haven't experienced enough in the last few years, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can get back to in my next job. There's, there's just no better feeling than, like, it's joining the dots, actually, with Kojima and Metal Gear Solid, <laughs> than writing a review that you're really proud of. And then the, the review is an event because the game is something that everybody wants to talk about. And not necessarily everybody wants to play. It wasn't like that. It's not like a, a massive game in the way that a Call of Duty is a massive game. But a review of a game like Death Stranding is a much bigger deal than a review of a Call of Duty, even if it's going to sell a quarter as many copies, because nobody wants to know what it's like. If everybody wants to know what it is, it's a, even a bit of a mystery. That's why I've always particularly loved to work on um, original games rather than sequels. Uh, you know, I also have, you know, long histories of writing about World of Warcraft or Forza Horizon or whatever for years, years and years on end. I enjoy doing that too. But there's a thrill you get from introducing something completely new to people, which is which is really special. Um, and the thrill of publishing that and and not just seeing, you know, the traffic come in and seeing a lot of people reading it, but seeing a, a lot of comments on it and, and rereading the review and feeling like you've actually got through to something important about the game, about who made it, about the world in which it was made as well. Like there's, there's, there's a few occasions on which I've done that. 
I'll, I'll name that one. I'm not going to list the others, but like, there's a few occasions on which I've done that that I've that just are very, very personally gratifying to me. One uh, that stands out for me uh, is your Witcher Three review because it happened to be when I was in Poland at the time, um, embedded at CD Projekt Red while oh, the game yeah. was coming out, oh, and yeah. so they were there waiting for your review, waiting for Eurogamer's review, and I remember being um, in a mall in uh, Warsaw uh, at a midnight launch for The Witcher 3, which I was being taken to to see how it was going. And yeah. I remember being on an escalator and yeah. the marketing person who I talked to and had, had taken me over there for, 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 this, for this coverage turned to me and with a kind of grin on his face and held up his mobile phone um, with uh, your review on and the line something saying something like this is the best rpg in a generation yeah um and he had this grin and i felt so relieved i was like <laughs> please be a good review um so that one really stands out to me but all of your all of your critical writing does and it makes i sense. will shout out another one actually uh fez ah fez i, I i've seldom had an easier time writing a review i think i did it in an hour it's just ridiculous it's just one of those times when a game is a, a game is an absolute gift. And I, I, I hand all the credit over to Polytron, to Phil Fish, for all that I know, but understand that he's a, kind of a difficult man. And uh, what, what was this program called? Renault, Renault Bedard, I think. Those two guys, they just made an absolutely, absolutely incredible game. And it just, and I, I, I loved writing it. And just, and when I wrote the review, it just, it just unfolded for me like, like, like a flower that's a really pretentious phrase but it, it was like that it's just like oh this is so this is just so easy and so beautiful and it's because the thing you've been given to talk about is so is so beautiful that's a really gratifying one not like it, it didn't it sort of land in such a big way because it's a smaller game but like yeah that was that that was that was a really special one yeah you know i asked a couple of people for some questions uh coming into this oh wait podcast. before we do that can i do it can i do another one actually oh, no, no. No, 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 no 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 i've decided no i've decided against it no you go, <laughs> ahead. you go ahead you don't want to seem uh like you have a big head about your way um so i asked a couple of people for some some questions and one of the people perhaps unsurprisingly was christian donnan mm -hmm. um and i think you used to work on edge with him actually did you yeah so we we freelanced on edge around the same time and I met him at, um, <laughs> I met him at, uh, some, it was some weird industry event. It was somewhere in the Midlands and Peter Molyneux was speaking, which was the only reason anybody was there. It was at some university in the Midlands and I was covering it for Eurogamer and Christian was covering it for Edge. Okay. Now I wasn't, I wasn't, sorry, I was covering it for games industry dubbies. Ellie was editing GI at the time. And um, so I was there, I'd been at this event, like frantically writing up anything notable Peter Molyneux had said, which was obviously loads because it was Peter. Uh, and Margaret, uh, who was editing Edge still at the time, saw me <laughs> and uh, I don't know, she can't have been there because, no, that must have been a different occasion. Anyway, sorry, 
misremembered that. But yes, Christian was there covering it for us. And he said that he walked in the doors and he was absolutely petrified. Typical Christian reaction that he'd been sent there by mistake. Because if Ollie was there, then surely he was doing it for Edge. And it was just some sort of cosmic error that caused <laughs> Christian to be sent there for Edge as well. So it's, no, it's Christian, it's fine. I'm doing it for GI. You're, you're, you're legit. You're allowed to be <laughs> Uh, yeah, so and he, I remember we had a great train ride back from that event talking about uh, talking about the reviews. I just reviewed um, Minish Cap, I think, or one of the handheld Zelda's, and we were chatting about Zelda and our review writing on the way back. He mentioned yes, your anyway. he mentioned your Minish Cap review actually, uh, but he said to me, he said when I met him, I was shocked by how grown up and refined and almost academic he was. <laughs> it made me think that you could be a number of different things and still write about games. And, and, and we talked a bit more after this. And then he said, we were talking about, you know, you and your, your work here. And, and he said, what I realize in typing all this to you is that I, and I think a lot of people, have looked at Ollie over the years for pointers on how to do this job, what is okay and what can be done and how it can be done. And he said, I would love you to tell him that, he said, he has been like a weather vane for me. Weather vane. Well, that's very sweet and very lovely, uh, as, as to expect from Christian, very lovely turn of phrase. Which I thought was lovely. He also said in capital letters, read his incredible piece on light switches. Because, <laughs> because he thinks this is the key to understanding you. I'll link this in the description below so people right. can read this and, and see what they take from it. And, and I read it. Um, it's only a short piece. Um, and I think I know what he means. Uh, and to, to quote your grandfather, who you talk about in the piece, um, who's talking about light switches and taps and door handles um, and what they should be. And he said, quote, good quality and pleasant to operate. And to me, that is, that's, almost, that's your work almost. It's, it's a, a kind of sense of quality, but I'll leave people to kind of. Uh, so, well, this is this is typical Christian. I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy him by reflecting the compliment straight back at him because that piece only exists because of him. It wasn't that like I went to Christian and went, I really can I can I do a piece about light switches? <laughs> he came to me and he was like, You really need to do a someone should game make a game about light switches. And I was like, What are you talking about? <laughs> I must have mentioned light switches to him at some point. We must have had a conversation because me and Christian talk about random things. He knows that I'm 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 into uh, architecture and design through my grandfather, but and he enjoys those topics too. But yeah, we must have talked about it at some point. And he was like, "I want you to write about Christian. I want you to write about light switches." So it's his. It, it, I'm afraid, Christian, it's that piece is only good because of your genius as an editor at knowing when someone has a great piece in them about a certain topic and that it can it, that it will bring something special out. And, and, and no one, I, I've, I've never known an editor like Christian for having that instinct. I compare a writer up with a game. I did a pretty good job of it when I was reviews editor, but like Christian has the, the most random thoughts about <laughs> what people should be writing about and they turn out to be inspired. So uh, yeah, no, he, uh, he, gets, he gets a good share of the credit for that piece. But I did, I did love writing the piece, it's true. And I did love, um, I don't know whether it reveals something about, I mean, it does reveal something about me because it talks about my family and my myself, which is something that I've, I find myself enjoying doing more as a writer. I don't know if you're the same, Bertie, like, like. Oh, I take anything you, from my life. I'm, I'm. Really <laughs> yeah, to be fair, but like, I, 
it's not that I, I feel more comfortable doing it. So the first step for me was moving from edge to Eurogamer, moving from I am edge, I am hive brain, I will refer to myself as edge and we to the Eurogamer style, which is, um, which is personal, which is first person and the writer, the writer is a personality. It's not the most personality led site out there. There's others that are, that are more about like these really strong writer personalities, but it's definitely first person. And the, the writer isn't invisible. It's not a, we are Eurogamer. It's not the edge or the economist or anything like that. Um, so, so that was, a, that was the first step. And I've found over the years, I've grown more comfortable showing more of myself and talking about more of myself in, in my articles. And, um, again, I think Christian has probably surreptitiously nudged me along that road a bit, um, because he's been like, for all that I've managed to write over the last couple of years, which hasn't been as much as I would have liked to. Uh, it's often been down to Christian, him nudging me into writing a little something for the site. So um, I'm very grateful to him for that because I always get a lot of pleasure out of it. Um, the good quality and pleasant to operate thing. Uh, I know what you mean in the, like, uh, for me, it's just very important that my writing is an end in itself. Hmm. That it should that it should have beauty. I mean, I'm an Eastie. I was brought up that way. It was the influence of of my my mum's family, particularly my grandfather, uh, and his and his architecture, which was very very beautiful, clean, modernist architecture, as you would imagine, coming out of Switzerland in the you know forties, fifties, sixties. Um. But yeah, I, I'm I'm an I'm an aesthete in that sense that I, I, I'm not, I'm not a snobby about, I'm not snobby about culture. I like my culture to come in all shapes and sizes and, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for it to be messy or ugly. But, uh, but in terms of the writing, I, I'm, I produce, I, I am, I am an aesthete and I want it to be pretty for, for want of a better word. I want it, I want it to be well, pretty, pretty's not right. Sounds slight, slightly dismissive and it's also too much focused on the, on the, um, the appearance. I want it to be pleasing. You yeah. see, even this is a glimpse into you writing, how you're deliberating over as writers do over one word to, to, to capture it, capture yeah. it perfectly. I, I, I honestly don't do it consciously though. I'm not sitting there thinking mm, that this sentence is not beautiful enough. It just, it, but it is, it's, I write, I write quite slowly, not very slowly because I've had enough practice that I can, I can churn it out. I write quite slowly. I do, I do minimal reworking. Like it's got to, it's got to come out the way that it's going to stay for the most part. And sometimes I will, I'll just lose a passage because it's just not working or because it's superfluous or just completely just chunk it out. But I, I rarely rework what I've written because I'll write it slowly and I'll, I'll want it to come out right first time. And I, that's not, that's not me bragging. It's just, it's diff different ways of working. I know other writers need to rework and rework and, and refine. And they, they, they get amazing results that way. It's just, it's just not how I work. I just need it to be, I just need it to come out well first time. Um, I have to bring, I have to bring this episode to a close uh, oh, quite okay. soon. And um, I've, I've got a few 
small questions to ask you at the yeah. end. But, um, I, I I almost don't want to uh, stop because if I if I keep was there a question from you... Christian by the end because you just you just gave me a statement which was very no, nice. It's more of a but... statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I almost don't want to stop because if I if I carry on, you'll never be able to leave. <laughs> um, so you know, I won't say seriously because this has been really nice to get I, you know i don't think i've talked about your background I, i've never had this opportunity almost in the past to really mm -hmm. kind of get to know who you are in this uh in this way so so thank you for doing this but also thank you for everything you've poured in to eurogamer after over the last you know nearly decade and a half everything you've given to the site in order to to shape it and and help it become what it is and so much of that is done behind the scenes that i hope people have an inkling it just doesn't the funny thing about it Bertie, is it just doesn't really feel like that like i mean it does because i worked on the site for a long time and i as part of the reason i'm 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 going is that i i can feel that i can feel all of those years of work but it doesn't it doesn't feel like pouring myself into into the site it feels particularly for the last few years it feels like stepping back and letting the site and the people on the side be themselves and be itself and just and just being a being a conduit for that it's not it's not me it's not an outpouring from me it's just it's like it's getting out of the way for all that for all that i was talking about the aesthetics and 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 and, and taking pride in the in in the quality of my writing it's it's so much of what what we do as journalists is about not taking ourselves out of it, but letting ourselves be a conduit for the for the for the really important stuff, which is the games themselves, yeah. and and in this case, the site itself as as a voice is not like like yeah, I don't know, I I don't know how to explain it other than it doesn't feel like it's come out of me. It feels like it's come come through me. Does that make sense? Yes. This is getting a bit deep, but we've we've certainly come a long way since that disco shed at the festival on brighton's oh, hills overlooking the sea <laughs> many years you ago. don't you don't want me to tell the stories about that weekend Bertie. <laughs> no i don't <laughs> no i don't but you'll thank you you'll always be a part of eurogamer for me and i and i know you will for for, for many other people uh who were everyone else who works here uh, but finally three questions yeah. uh, that i ask everyone so i think we touched on this but what was your first game my first game, Inca mm. Curse. Yeah, no, I, I mentioned it earlier. Um, I think so. Anyway, it's possible that there was some some arcade game like playing pole position in an arcade before that. That might that might have happened, but I think really for like for the purposes of like a satisfying origin story, it's, it's playing <laughs> playing Inca Curse on the ZX eighty one at home. What was the last game that you played? uh predictably forza horizon 5 which i am you know i i haven't yet checked out this week's uh season update so i'm excited to jump back in but um it had to it had to run an update and while while i was waiting for forza horizon 5 to update i played some of unpacking and that was fantastic mm. best sound in uh any game i've played in a long time all the satisfying little cardboard noises and little clicks and clacks and stuff as you're unpacking things beautiful absolutely beautiful podcast listeners we have the creator of unpacking uh for an episode in the new year so good segue forward to that um and finally 
What is your best game? Uh, uh, I mean, there can only be one, can't there? But you know what it is. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. It's, it's World of Warcraft. And I don't... I don't think it's the best game I played. I wouldn't put it at the top of the Pantheon. But, you know, it would, it would have to be a Miyamoto, really. Like, if you're being even vaguely sensible, it's just, it's just got to be a Miyamoto game. But I just, I just, World of Warcraft just captured me. And I'm not even talking about the amount of time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, thousands of hours I spent in that game, but that, the place that it took me, I guess, mm. the way that it created created a whole world. It, it it was it was the I think World of Warcraft more than any other game, more even than Ocarina of Time or Mario sixty four was the was the or, or you know not that this was one of my game, but I know it was for other people. GTA three, World of Warcraft was the game that was just like come into a world, you know, just just experience it, be in be in this space be in this completely fantastical, yeah, relatable space that will be real to you. And and WoW is the game that really, really did that for me. Just the just the sheer size of it and the sort of integrity and the believability of its landscapes as sort of even though they're just a load of fantasy nonsense, the way they've been crafted, you know, was in a way that felt so real to you as a player. I mean it was really just insanely fun to play as well and insanely fun to experience with friends but that was the game that that delivered on the promise that i knew from the first moment playing inca curse and reading it in the text on the screen that i knew games could do that world of warcraft was the game that delivered on that promise for me and i think it will always be that game for me uh so yeah that's the that's the game that is a lovely place to finish. Ollie, thank you so much uh, for speaking to me. Good luck. Oh, thank you. Uh, I could do it for another hour. And um, yeah, I hope you feel better. I know, I'm sorry, I got you off your sick bed. People were... Oh no, I'm all right. I'm, I'm already I'm already recovered. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be back fighting fit in no time. Uh, listeners will be back in the new year uh, with unpacking, uh, as I said, and many other things. So. Um, subscribe or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts uh, we'll be back and we'll speak to you soon ollie thank you again and goodbye to everyone else bye thanks <laughs>